Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Axiom Principle. I'm your host, Dr. G. And tonight, I thought I'd discuss something that kind of annoys me whenever I'm talking to people online. And uh, anytime I have social interactions with people, um, it doesn't happen so much in personal interaction more than it does online, uh, at least from what I've noticed. But then again, it might be that I just don't associate with these people outside of the Internet. So I'm thinking that's probably what it is, but I'm still going to dive into it anyways because it's a point of annoyance and contention for me. And I think it needs to be addressed because it happens so dang often that it's become monotonous and really irritating to deal with. I I honestly just can't stand it. It's um, And it's also, ironically, not my strongest subject in in my academic world. It's uh, something that I struggle with, and maybe that's also why I have a point of contention in with, with this. Maybe that's my issue. And uh, what I'm referring to in this uh, particular podcast, for any of you that might have been um, able to read the, the heading for today, is modifying definitions. I, I really... I didn't like English in high school. I didn't. I didn't have to take it in college, really, because uh, I focused on leadership. I focused on IT um, and that type of thing. So it was more philosophy, psychology that I had to deal with English. But uh, the more I've gotten into doing the online narratives, the podcasts, the um, communications with other people. Communications and linguistics has always been an interesting topic to me, but not in the sense that words and definitions in the English literature is important. And by no means am I an actual English major. So there's always that. So let's uh, start into the first point, the uh, why do words have meaning? So it just so happens that on uh, Scholastic.com, which is a website that's usually dedicated to education, dedicated to teachers and uh, communications thereof, the Scholastic Corporate Vice President, founder of Early Childhood Division, Helen Benham, had a conversation with Bruce Duncan Perry, which is a medical doctor and a phys doctor, so a psychological doctor, well, yeah, actually, let me uh, let me just uh, address like this is a conversation piece that I, I wanted to bring up. And uh, I'm just going to read a couple excerpts out of it because I thought it was really compelling of why words have meaning and why it's so important for us to understand that. So to start off. The um, the first thing it, it starts off with is, is Helen Benham uh, addressing her guest. And it's a conversation. So it says is with uh, Dr. Bruce Perry, chief Psych- chief of psychiatry at Ch- Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, Texas, and he's talking about the meaning of words. And the first question they ask is, "How do words come to have meaning?" I think the way he describes it is is wonderfully eloquent. So let me let me uh, just quote here: "Words are merely sounds." until they become associated with an object or an action or a feeling. 
And the way sounds come to have meaning is through repetitive exposure to the spoken language in the context of a relationship. An infant who has heard spoken words only from a radio would never really come to understand the language. But an infant with a caregiver who will say, here, see the dog, this is a doggy, or open up a book and say, find the ball, will soon learn that a unique combination of sounds signify the dog or a ball. As soon as the infant makes the connection between the objects and the sounds, the sounds then become a word. That is how the meaning comes to words, by making the association between the sound and the object. So I want to point out that this is, this is beautifully stated. Our language, our speaking ability is only useful in so much as we have somebody to talk to. Even if we were muttering to ourselves, if we were alone in the universe and never had language to start with, so you're just by yourself in a bubble, you would never develop language because there would be no need to convey ideas to people. You would have no reason to speak. The mere idea that we have language derives from the need to explain situations or surroundings to other people. This is compelling and important because without this tool at our disposal, we could never have developed as much as we have. The way our language has evolved over the last 6,000 or 10,000 years that we've had it. Nobody actually really knows, by the way, how long language has existed because it's one of those nebulous things that we could never actually prove when it started. The, there's no physical evidence of the substantiation of language. We do have physical evidence of our first written words. And writing not, does not necessarily... Let me try that again. Night, writing does not necessitate the experience of language. Take, for example, uh, dolphins. They have proven with, beyond a shadow of a doubt that dolphins have their own language. The pitches and, and clicks and wheezes and, and whistles that they do underwater have meaning. I was watching a documentary recently on the life of dolphins and found that they were able to communicate with dolphins, and dolphins are able to communicate with each other. In fact, they have names in their whistles. We, as humans, don't understand it because it we're a different species. Their communication is far different from our own because their communication has adapted to the not-so-friendly sound frequencies of the water, our voices do not carry in water as well as they do in the air because of the density difference in atmosphere, obviously. So they have developed a way to communicate with each other underwater. It was fascinating to me that they also have uh, self-awareness, which is something that only humans, as far as we know, have. But that's besides the point. What's interesting is, is they also, too, have language, and they derive meaning in the same fashion that we do. The repetitive sounds don't mean a thing until they're adjoined with an object. 
or an action or a feeling. This is why it is so important to understand why words have meaning. So the it continues on and he says it often refers to some sensory bath being at the core of all human interactions. What exactly is this bath and how do people experience it in different ways? When in utero means pre-born, we are literally bathed in completely in completely in the mother's environment. Every sight, sound, touch, scent, and vibration, every sensation is coming from that mother's world. A bath of sensations. After birth, this bath changes, yet all of the infant's senses are bathed in a continuous set of sensations, most of which derive from primary caregivers. And nothing is more soothing, reassuring, or pleasurable than when the infant's bathed by the mother's touch, gaze, scent, or taste. The baby becomes calm, full, warm, and happy. Well, not always. I want to minorly adjust that. There's a way for uh, fathers to also be in in that. We can communicate with the baby. And in fact, I used to do it with my children where you put your uh, head next to the wall of the uh, pregnant mom and you speak through the the skin, as it were, and you kicked in the face because you're talking to your baby and they... uh, they recognize that there's sound there. They don't quite understand it. It's from the outside. So they don't hear it as if it was the mother's speaking. But still, it's got a point here that we're bathed in our senses. This is something we have developed and something that is continuing to develop as we mature in our evolution. So the meaning of words really sets the pace for all communications and it doesn't go anywhere because we're firmly bound to the language that we speak. So as we expand this between just a two-person interaction to a cultural interaction, we have developed language where words have meanings for very specific things and we all agree upon those meanings. If we decide to change the meaning of a word in society or in that culture or even in the language, the communication is lost. You now have confusion and chaos. There's no way to convey your idea because two people in the same conversation will have very different meanings of the same word. This is utterly useless, and it essentially leads to a very chaotic conversation that is – fruitless. It's useless. There's no way to have a decent conversation with somebody that changes the meaning of a word to fit what they want it to fit. And this is not synonymous in just English. This happens across every single language that there exists on this planet. People will change the meaning of a word to fit what they want it to fit. To give some examples... There's plenty of YouTubers online who will redefine words to fit their meaning. There's plenty of people on Twitter that do this. Um, And there's 
it, and it happens so frequently that it's really difficult to carry on a conversation with some of these people, especially if they're religiously or ideologically driven to where the conversation ends up being a fight because there's, there's different, a different opinion based on a different definition of a single word. So I wanted to um, point out why this all matters. Let's go for supposed purposes that Chinese is not the largest language being spoken throughout the entire world and that English is the common language of pretty much all Western civilization, um, thanks to, in largely in part to the English um, colonists and settlers. Um, the English language is probably the most common language used in Western civilization, in education, in business. Um, you may work with different cultures and traditions across the world, but most of the time in the business acumen, you're going to be speaking English. I will just focus on the English language because that is my primary language. I do know a few others, but um, this will best be defined and in, in in, uh, demonstrated through the English language is uh, most familiar with it. It makes it easier for me. Um, and as I said earlier, this, this is not something that's just happening in the English language. And as we, as I've said earlier, the reason words have meaning is because we associate them to um, nouns, essentially, or actions, or emotions. We use these words to explain our surroundings. So when you change those words, you're no longer explaining your surroundings to somebody else. You're doing it to rationalize your own opinions. In uh, in education you'll find that uh, teachers focus from K through 12 on uh, regurgitation of information when it comes to English studies and English um, education. And they focus mostly on not just word use, but word definitions. Before you learn how to use a word, you learn what that word means. This is in critical importance because if you change the meaning of a word or you try to subjectify that word into your own personal meaning to make it, sen make it have sense for you, uh, you have the potential to arbitrarily redefine that word into something that it isn't. So the importance of maintaining definitions and maintaining the same definition across every word that you use helps you communicate with other people effectively. If you fail to do this, essentially what ends up happening is uh, mass confusion and hysteria. You may be using the same language, but you're not using the same meanings. And uh, we've all seen what that ends up doing. But more importantly, in the realm of logistics, logic and reason in the realm of philosophy and epistemology, there is a fallacy for the very thing that I'm talking about. The modifying of definitions 
or what I call word salad, has an informal fallacy that's related to equivocation. For those of you that aren't familiar with equivocation, it is when you take the elements of an argument and make it ambiguous. So just for fun, what I'll do is actually look up the definition of equivocation so that I make a level set example. The use of ambiguous language to conceal the truth or to avoid committing oneself to prevaca- uh, prevarication. What this does when you equivocate uh, a word or you, you make it so ambiguous that it could literally mean anything or it could mean much of what you're talking about. One of the best examples that I've seen is something I'll get into in a little bit is when uh, a YouTuber named Riley Dennis decided to redefine violence to suit this person's narrative. Um, This person claims to be a trans person, although I have my doubts because I've met a couple in my lifetime and I know what they're like. They definitely have what's called gender dysphoria. And he doesn't seem to have the symptoms of gender dysphoria. It's more a social attitude, which uh, makes him a basically a trendy, uh, trendy trans is what I'll call it. They're doing it because it's a culture of trend, uh, trendy uh, gender expression, but doesn't have anything to do with the actual psychological issues of gender dysphoria. So it's almost like they're making a mockery of the actual issue. Um, but I digress. So in equivocation, um, basically you're making the meaning of something ambiguous. As an example, the elements of the moral argument on the status of the unborn life strongly favor the conclusion that this unborn segment of humanity has a right not to be killed, at least without laying out all the evidence here. It is far to conclude from medicine that the humanity of the life growing in a mother's womb is undeniable and in itself a powerful reason for treating the unborn with respect. This is from Helen Alavero, The Unborn Controversy, published uh, 1995. That was page 24. So that's just an example. It's the status of the unborn life. So you're making a uh, equivocation that humanity has a not right to be killed, yet at the same time, you must lay out the evidence for somebody to be killed. I have my own opinions on abortion, but for example, as an argument point, that's a good example of what equivocation kind of looks like. So the counterexample to that, humanity of the patient appendix is medically undeniable. Therefore, the appendix has the right to life and should not be surgically removed. So you see in the equivocation fallacy, if you used another body part as an example, it makes no sense. The appendix cannot live, for example, without human, because it is a part of that human's uh, anatomy. The baby, however, is not. It's a parasitic uh, life 
that exists inside the womb and cannot exist anywhere else is a parasite until eight to nine months to term. And then it can be either forcibly removed or it removes itself, in which case that's called birth. Uh, either way, it's a parasitic life up until that point. But the uh, equivocation is a type of ambiguity where it occurs in a single word or phrase that is ambiguous. In other words, it's uh, phrased in such a way that the whole conclusion, the whole premise is meant to have two meanings or it can have double meanings. So you're changing words to fit the narrative. So in redefinition, which is a part of the equivocation fallacy, what you'll see is you take a word and you warp it to mean something else. Just reading from the fallacyfiles.org here, uh, exposition on this. To redefine a term, of course, is to assign it a new meaning. This is not necessarily fallacious to give a term a new meaning, and it is often done to produce technical terms, but it is a logical booby trap, and this is where I have to agree. There's always the danger of slipping back into using the term in its old meaning out of habit, which could cause the fallacy of equivocation. So in other words, you take a meaning of a word, and it means something, and you redefine it in the context of whatever you're talking about, because there is no other word, say, to express what you're trying to talk about. So you use one as an analogy or a or stopping point. But then you return back to using that word to its original definition, thus making your entire argument useless. We may start out reasoning with the term using its new meaning in the premises and then fall back to using the similar meaning in the conclusion, which is what I was talking about. You start out okay with the meaning and then you switch back without even realizing it, making your entire argument useless. Uh, there's two kinds of redefinitions depending on um, how you approach it. There's the low redefinition, which is um, if a definition of a word is very succinct, it's very descriptive, and it's very um, articulated to a point that you, there's no question that's what this means. And I'll give some examples in a little bit. And then basically you modify that definition to mean literally anything. So to give an example of this, uh, straight from the website, if we use the word bat, we're, to re and we're redefined as flying animal, then not only would bats be bats, but birds would be as, as well. So a bird could be a bat because they're both flying animals. So the defining characteristic of the low definition is that the term is redefined to applies in cases where it doesn't really fit. So you made the meaning more vague. So a bat is now a flying animal, but that would also conclude that birds, storks, and any other flying animal is also a bat, which is obviously not true. There's an also a high definition, which is the complete opposite. 
So, for example, if you use the word bird and redefined it as feather, feathered flying animal, then flightless birds, such as ostriches, would no longer be birds. They, uh, the defining characteristic is that the original term applies, but it doesn't apply to other ones. So I think that's a good example where you take, um, take a hawk, and you define the hawk as a, fly, a feathered flying animal, but if you say that all birds are feathered flying animals, ostriches and other flightless birds, penguins and so on and so forth, are no longer birds because you changed the meaning of what bird means. If you get the get the catch there, the feathered flying animal, the modifier flying makes it so that some birds are actually not birds anymore just because you chose not chose them not to be birds you redefine the term you redefine the word so this redefinition of words you'll see come in two ways and the low redefinition which is the old meaning becomes ambiguous or the high definition where the uh Previous definition was very broad, and then you narrowed it, and now it means nothing. The problem with redefining these words like this, and, and not just because it's a fallacy, is because when you have a discussion with somebody, and you're talking about a political issue, a religious issue, and you're, using, you're both using the same word, but you both define it in very different ways, you'll never come to consensus. You'll never come to an agreement or a disagreement, or you'll never be able to properly communicate to one another unless you can agree on your terms or agree on the meaning of the word. So what I'm going to do next is I'm going to run down some examples of where terms have been redefined or reapplied. Um, and what I'm going to start with on each one of these is I'm going to start with the Dictionary definition as read out of Merriam-Webster. I know that some people prefer Oxford definitions, but um, they're kind of the same. I, whenever I look at these words in either dictionary, um, they're descriptive in a way that it, there's no ambiguity between the two publications. It's just two different ways to explain the same thing, which is not a, redefin a redefinition, but it's a different in, in expression of the same context. Either way, the meaning is clear in both of those dictionaries. Why I refer to the dictionary so much in my conversations with some people is because they seem to play with words to redefine them in their own special meaning. And uh, the bigger one that I pointed out with Riley Dennis, for example, I'll, I'll get to. I'm going to probably do that one last, though, because it's pretty entertaining. So I'm going to start out first with a very common one, the definition of faith. So faith has three separate meanings, according to Merriam-Webster. And this is where it gets very interesting. It depends on context and where you're talking about something. So allegiance uh, allegiance, <laughs> allegiance or duty to a person. So it's loyally. You have faith in someone, for example. For example, wow, I'm not doing too well tonight. 
fidelity or promises to one person. You have faith in what they can accomplish or you have faith that they will carry out what they said they would. There's also the belief and trust and loyalty to God, belief in traditions or doctrines of a religion. Uh, they particularly call out God because faith is often used in religious terms when dealing with anybody that believes in a deity. This is true of Muslims, Christians, Jews, Hindu, uh, Buddhists, you name it. There's an element of faith in each one of these, and it's a belief and trust in this deity. There's also the part two of that definition, firm belief in something for which there is no proof, a clinging to the faith that, uh, well, here's the example, clinging to the faith that her missing son would one day return. Is blind hope and trust that something is going to happen even though there is no evidence. And that's particularly the definition of faith that I favor, and I'll get to that in a minute. The third definition, believing that something that is believed, especially when with strong conviction, man, I'm just having a great night tonight. Something that is believed, especially with strong conviction, especially a system of religious beliefs. So strong conviction can also be used as a term of faith. Many atheists, for example, will use the Part two, definition B, which is the firm belief in something for which there is no proof, as their definition of what faith is, belief without proof, belief without evidence. Um, To give another example of redefinition, but not necessarily in a bad way, is pretending to know what you do not know, as defined by Dr. Peter Pagosian. He used this definition to define faith uh, in the context of his book, uh, Manual for Creating Atheists, because it fit what he was trying to discuss. You pretend to know what you do not know. Also is another expression of the same definitions. And that's one of my points here. If you modify a definition to rationalize your position, if you're, if you're modifying the definition and it means exactly the same thing, just using different words, you have not modified the meaning of the word. You have just expressed the same definition of the word in different way. This does not diminish your communications, but expresses it differently. And there's nothing wrong with that in particular. But it's when you take a word and redefine it. So in the terms of faith, when somebody's arguing uh, in a Christian or Muslim example, they'll argue that you don't have faith and that what they're saying is you don't believe in a God, or, which, is, which is accurate because you believe in something there is no proof, but they think there is proof. So there's a uh, discontent, uh, disconnect in uh, what faith means. They believe that there is proof and there's their proof. You believe there is no proof and here's, and show me the evidence. Um, the redefinition of faith for some people, if you ask them what they mean, it's firm affirmation or the um, knowledge of God. I've heard a few different definitions. Um, and there's act- faith is actually also defined in the Bible, if you care to read it. Um, that's just one example. To give another example that's a little bit more entertaining, um, 
and a lot less ambiguous with faith. It's so usually the first step of contention, the first part of an argument or a discussion between somebody that's religious versus somebody that's not religious. Um, but whenever I'm talking about faith, um, the firm belief in something for which there is no proof is the type of faith that I think is useful. The reason why I say this is any action that you take, anything that you do, you don't know if you're able to accomplish. You don't know if you're able to maintain or or uh, develop what you're about to do unless you try. Uh, case in point, my YouTube channel, my blog, my uh, this podcast, I um, I've never much been comfortable talking in public or um, just expressing my opinions. I've been kind of nervous about uh, the repercussions of speaking out against certain groups that tend to want to try and ruin your life because they disagree with you. These type of things uh, could be potential barriers that would prevent you from acting. So you don't know what's going to happen. You have no proof that this will happen. You have some proof that certain things may happen. People have gotten injured doing certain things. And say you want to try spelunking and, you know, some people have gotten injured doing spelunking and others have not. Well, that's all fine, but you never know if you're going to get injured unless you try. And not knowing unless you try is the affirmation of faith in the context of your capabilities. But let's move to another one. Um, I think it's this is probably the most enjoyable one that I've seen redefined in recent time. And that is the definition of science. I've seen it used in broad terms. I've seen it used in misconstrued terms. Often what you'll see is those that are arguing from an unfalsifiable position uh, will will redefine science to fit their narrative, which is absolutely entertaining. The uh, the most often I see it from flatter society idiots. Uh, there's no way to express how stupid they are for bling, believing the Earth is flat based on I can't see the curve, therefore Earth flat. It's it's just just amazing. The, what what's interesting though is they all all the people that seem to try to leverage evidence and say they're using science to do so redefine what science actually means. So let's go through this a little bit. Um, there's five definitions. The fifth one is absolutely entertaining because it makes no sense. Uh, and I think it's an oxymoron. Definition of science. Number one, the state of knowing. Knowledge as distinguished from ignorance or misunderstanding. So seeking of knowledge is science, is how I would state that. I've redefined the word, but not out of context of what the word means. Just to state. A department of systematized knowledge as an object of study, which it goes and says, the science of theology. I, I don't know who writes Merriam-Webster, but clearly they have a Christian bias trying to redefine terms, the science of theology. 
if you're just studying a human ignorance in the last 10,000 years, that's the perfect subject to talk about, I suppose. And there's no greater knowledge than our own ignorance. We know our own failings, I guess. The Department of Systematized Knowledge as an object of study could also be applied to the Department of Physics would be a more um, appropriate example, I think, that they should use. That's special. Um, or the Department of Mathematics, the Department of English. Stuff like that would be considered a, a development of science. Something that may be studied or learned like systematized knowledge. And the phrase they use is have it down to a science. This is a um, applied where you study something over and over and over again to further know what that thing means. Uh, that, that would be an applicable way of putting to be into context. Knowledge or a system of knowledge covering general truths or the operation of general laws, especially as obtained and tested through the scientific method. Such knowledge or a system of knowledge concerned with physical world and its phenomena, natural science. So the third definition is the most commonly used. And that's the one that's most commonly modified. So they say that you can't test God with science, for example. And what they're referring to is you can't test God with a system of knowledge covering the general truths of operation of general laws, especially obtained through the scientific method. The scientific method is a process in which we attempt to discover what, who, or uh, basically attempt to discover knowledge about a thing. And this one is redefined in religious contexts, mostly flat earth society, things like that, where they try to claim that the scientific method is flawed because it cannot test the supernatural because it only deals with physical world. Ironically, it is the very scientific method that disproves their claims of the supernatural because the supernatural is beyond the natural as defined by the dictionary and if you cannot test the natural it is useless it does not exist in this universe yet if the supernatural interacts with the natural that interaction could then be tested and quantified any interaction this is why i define myself as agnostic atheist because you may claim that a God exists and there's no way to prove or disprove that a God exists. That's fine because it's a ambiguous term. It's unfalsifiable and it's utterly useless. You can't test a generalized term. You cannot use the scientific method to find out. But when you start claiming that God did this, God did that, God is this, God has this attribute, God does this. When these interactions to the natural world occur. You can use the scientific method to test them. In the religious context, what they'll do is they'll redefine those words to fit their own special narrative, including science and scientific method and the other uh, terms that come with that, such as objectivity, um, laws, 
and theory. Those get often redefined. Theory meaning a guess, but it really doesn't. It is the um, explanation of how a thing works. The theory of gravity, for example, explains how gravity works. It's an explanation. And then laws are definitions. And this gives you an example also of modifying definitions the way to explain or use in a very technical term. So a law in other text would be a descriptive case of what you can and cannot do. These are often used in legal terms, right? So a law means um, you can do this or you cannot do that. In a technical term in, in science, a law is a definition of what is. The uh, laws of thermodynamics explain how heat works. They are defining the functions of heat. Uh, the theory is often replaced with guess. It's just a theory you'll hear often. And in part of the definitions, theory is a guess. In the, in the technical terms of the definition, not to make it ambiguous, but to use it in very technical terms, a theory is an explanation of what is. And you'll often see this twisted when you're talking to religious people that they'll use theory as the, it's just a guess, and we'll use theory as, no, it's an explanation. Uh, these terms are not agreed upon and thus cause contention. And then the fourth one, um, a system of reconciling practi uh, practical ends with scientific laws. Cooking is both a science and an art. So, uh, in the example, in the word phrase, cooking is technically chemistry, but it's chemistry designed to fit subjective experiences. So you're cooking to uh, your own flavors and tastes. Or maybe you're trying to impress somebody, so you're cooking to their flavors or tastes. But you're still using chemistry to make that happen. And then number five, it is capitalized. And all they put in here was Christian science. I call this an oxymoron because Christianity completely relies on faith and does not rely on anything subjectively true, nor can you um, test anything in the realm of faith or supernatural belief. So the idea that there is science in a faith is ridiculous. An oxymoron. The next one that's often defined, and I touched a few times, is the word belief. There's three definitions, and I'll just quickly go over them. A state of mind in which trust or confidence is placed in, in a person or thing. The second one is something that is accepted or considered to be true or held as an opinion, something believed. And the third one, a conviction of truth, of some statement or reality of some being or phenomenon, especially when based on the examination of evidence. So let's go to the first one, the belief uh, and state of mind and believing something is uh, existing or 
confidence in something, the belief that God is real, for example. Belief is often tossed out as a value that people should have, that you should just believe in something whether or not it's true. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that. There are some beliefs that I have that are not necessarily true. I believe that I can do quite a many things, but I don't know if that's actually true until I try, just to give an example. The other one that really kind of the focus of everything that I do with uh, my channels, with the axiom principle, is something that is accepted as true or considered to be true or held as an opinion. The axiom principle, an axiom is something that is true regardless, and you don't need to present evidence because everybody accepts it. It's a universal truth. For example, gravity sucks. Gravity will always pull toward the center of a large mass like a planet. That's, that's a universal truth. An axiom principle, as I put it, the axiom principle, is something that is said to be true, but clearly is not true. And because the evidence says the opposite. So a belief is something that is accepted or considered to be true, but not necessarily is it true. And this definition has... Um, has very hard connotations that belief is a good thing when in fact it, it's a dangerous thing if used in an improper context. And uh, the last thing, the conviction of a true statement or uh, the reality of something being a phenomenon, this is also true because people can believe in something. They don't necessarily have to have the evidence that it is true. But when they go and test it using the scientific method or the test of validity of this claim of their belief, um, it's, it's accepted. One good example of this is climate change. It's believed that climate change is a real thing because a lot of the scientific evidence says so, that we are modifying our climate in some way. What is not agreed upon and people use belief as a conjecture, uh, a jumping board to get off into their own expressions of that belief is that we don't know what the outcome is going to be. And no way do we have any idea how to prove what the outcome is going to be as of yet. I don't think that we've ever carried a test um, because the problem with trying to do something like that is, is time. We have no way to speed up time in, in small bubbles or in a lab to see what the effects would be of, of our own actions on the planet without damaging everything. We have no control over time to begin with. So, um, Some of the other ones that's thrown in our face uh, and, and getting over to the more of the political side is uh, feminism is often redefined. What you'll find is a lot of the feminists online will throw the literal definition at you, and that is the theory of political, economic, or social equality of the sexes, organized activity on behalf of women's rights and interests. So there's two problems with this, what they've failed to recognize. And I think maybe some of the people that are anti-feminists also fall into this trap, is the theory of political, economic, and social equality of the sexes is the first definition that's thrown at us. But in expression and use, you'll see the organized activity on behalf of women's rights and interests. So what happens is the first definition is used as a statement of their affirmation. 
The second definition is used as a statement of their actions. We often hear that actions are louder than words. And the reason why they are is because action, words can be redefined. They, they are just noise. But actions leave marks. They leave evidence. Actions do speak louder than words because they change what's going on. So when, when a feminist goes in and says feminine means, feminism means this, the equality of the sexes, and then they act only in the interest of women, they're not actually aligning with the first definition, the equality of women. Otherwise, they would also advocate for the men's rights that make things unequal. For example, longer prison sentences is one that you hear from the men's right activists, often um, higher suicide rates, the... Um, unfair treatment of custody cases where it usually aligns with the women over the men. This type of thing you'll see a lot. And ironically, you'll hear nothing from feminists because they speak the first definition, but align with the second. They only care about women's rights and not necessarily equal rights. This is why this term feminism is often a oxymoron because of these two definitions, which actually conflict with each other. Equality means that there would be no need to advocate for women's rights. You would advocate for the rights of the humans. What's, what's good for both sides, regardless of sex. But the fact that they advocate for women's rights only suggests that they don't care about one side, which makes it not equal, but unequal. This kind of oxymoron is a modifying of definition, and an oxymoron is essentially taking a term which has two meanings to conflict with each other. Uh, the most humorous explanation of, or uh, demonstration of this I've ever seen was the use of military intelligence. The military is not very intelligent, therefore military intelligence is not a term that should be considered relevant. An oxymoron is its foot. So there's a couple more uh, definitions I'd like to go over with you. And uh, the, the last couple ones that I want to go over with you, I've, uh, like I mentioned a few times um, from Riley Dennis, the feminists, um, claims to be trans activists, that uh, what they'll do is they'll – the SGWs and the and the um, Black Lives Matter and uh, all these social ideologies do this quite often. And what what is um, interesting is what how they redefine or reterm this word, and that word is violence. So this one you'll see often, uh, particularly from the ideological side. Um, of the political spectrum that don't have God beliefs, but they think they're in the right from social beliefs. And they'll redefine the word violence. So let's just go through the four definitions there are. The use of physical force as to injure, abuse, or damage, or destroy an instance of violent treatment or procedure. To injure as if by destroying, infringing, or profane. Or injury by or as if by. That's how it says. Injury by or as if by distortion, infringement, or prof 
profanation. So violence is injury by distortion, which is very nebulous, I think. Intense, turbulent, or furious, and often destruction, action, or force. Violence of the storm. Vehement feeling or expression. Fervor is the uh, synonym word. An instance of such action or feeling. A clash, a clashing of jarring quality. And the fourth definition, undue alteration. So some of these definitions I think have been added recently because Merriam-Webster seems to be on the Christian SJW bandwagon side as of late. And this is the reason why I wanted to use these guys in the first place. So the first definition of use of physical force as to injury, abuse, damage, or destroy is the definition of violence that pretty much everyone across the planet accepts. You see it redefined by the likes of the SJWs, the Black Lives Matter, the feminist, and so on and so forth that say that violence, words are violence, you'll hear from them. And this aligns with the second definition, injury by or as if by distortion, infringement, or profanation. This is to say that words hurt their feelings and that emotional pain is violence. I don't necessarily agree because violence is usually associated with physical pain or physical aggression. In the example of the intense, turbulent, or furious and often destruction action of force, you can say a storm is violent because it destroys your house. A tornado, for example, is violent because it wreaks havoc and destruction. That is violence. Violence term that's often used in physical uh, construct in, in, a, in actions of, of the physical. The actions of the mind, it could be argued that are or are not violence. But the thing is, uh, objectively, is that true? The, the challenge here with redefining violence is if it, if it doesn't fit your narrative, then you've made a useless term. So when you say words are violence, if you have a violent if – if I say feminism is the most retarded thing on this planet, well, is that violence? Well, feminists would say yes, I hurt their feelings. And anti-feminists would say no, that's funny. And that's right. But, you know, in the in context of violence, which I find interesting and in why people shouldn't redefine and reuse words that they uh, want to rationalize or equivocate. No one is going to argue with me if I punch them in the face and say that is violence. Everyone will accept, yeah, that was pretty violent. You hurt somebody. That is true violence. Objectively. Physical injury. A use of force, damage, or destruction of property is violence. Destruction of people, injury of a person, that is violence. Everybody accepts this. Yet when you say words are violence, you've modified the definition of what it, what it means to be words. Words are just sounds. They mean nothing unless put into a relationship with another individual. 
So in what way could a sound be violent? It makes no sense. The context of saying sounds or violence uh, could only fit if you were injured from a sonic boom. A whip, for example, breaks the sound barrier at the end of the whip. That's what makes the little crackle sound, the, the pop. In this context, words are definitely not violence because they do not actually create physical injury, abuse, or damage. So to redefine a term, for example, and and Riley Dennis actually did this as well, read a different definition that more suited his narrative and thus made a new terminology that uh, uh, just blurred the meaning of violence so that it fit his narrative. The modifying of definitions is clear in this case. But truly, uh, this is the new uh, rationalization. But the action of rationalization, modifying definitions and terms, is something that has been going on for a very long time. And it all comes down to difference in... uh, opinion of what a word means or what a sound means. Somebody else may have been taught that words are violence, but that doesn't necessarily make it true because the term has been defined in the context of the language being spoken. So if it was a different language, yes, words could be violence in that language, but we've already defined that term. So you redefine the term, you've lost the meaning in that context of the language being spoken. And the last one I was going to lead you with is the redefinition of truth. Um, you often see truth being displayed as uh, a thing that uh, only certain people have. Then they actually are expressing an opinion. The, the importance of this is state, the state of being a case, the body of real things, events, or facts. That's definition two. This definition is the one that I would accept over the others. Uh, you can look up the other definitions on your time, but I only have 30 seconds left, unfortunately. So thank you for joining me on this uh, podcast. I, I hope that you enjoyed it. Wow. Um, the uh, re- redefinition of words is something that we should all take care in in our own language and uh, redefining words in the way that some people do is, is a fallacy. It is a way of destroying the conversation in order to fit their narrative. Thank you for joining me. So this is the after show. I wanted to, I have a few things to discuss um, beyond the right definition of words. So I've, I've beefed up my YouTube channel. I put a couple funny posts up there recently. I actually talked about the Battle of Berkeley where words are violence. And then um, a feminist who's also a porn actress got punched in the face in this um, after stating that she wanted to go get 100 Nazi scalps when there are no Nazis there. are violence. And she learned the hard way of what violence really is. 
and then went on a pity trip about that afterwards, which is ironic because, you know, feminism wants equality as, as one of the redefinitions of the term. But when they try to act that equality, they all of a sudden want chivalry when they decide to get aggressive toward a male and a male knocks them the he- fuck out. That's inequality. If you want chivalry is the action of inequality in that sense. But there's a new, um, there's another thing that I need to mention. We got a new tool out there for uh, any of you that are interested. We're starting to uh, publicize it. I'm going to have a few talks coming up where I'm going to throw it out there. We're calling this new tool called Critique. Critique method is a revamping of an approach of conversations between two people where we try to come to a common agreement and maybe find what objective truth truly is. It's a it's a pretty interesting approach. I hope that some of you take a look at it. Um, we're still setting up. Uh, I believe we have our website up already, and that's crtque. dot com. Critique. Um, those uh, it's an acronym for conversation ready tools to question everything. And these tools are essentially a method of trying to determine what is true and what is not true in a meaningful conversation. So if you're trying to have an intellectual conversation with somebody, uh, one of the things that uh, you need to watch out for is the redefining of words. You need to have a level set of what you and they agree a word is. And if you can get down to that level set, then you can have a meaningful, meaningful conversation. If you can't, then the conversation is useless. And that's why this episode was about that. And I hope that you can check out the critique method and, and see what you think about that. The uh, next episode for the Axiom Principle, pull that up real quick. I don't think that I have it posted up on the, uh, I don't have it posted on Blog Talk Radio yet, but the next episode is, uh, a discussion about outcome versus opportunity. This is a analysis of the social justice warrior affirmation that everybody should get equal outcome versus equal opportunity, which is actually more favorable. Um, there's some quotes that I'm going to use. I'm going to try I'm going to actually have some audio in this one uh, from a different conversation where somebody outlined this whole idea quite succinctly. And I thought I'd bring it back to light because this conversation happened 30, I think 30 or 40 years ago, it was really old, um, but it's very profound and I think it's very relevant to what we see today. And hopefully I can get to the, the slightly younger audience, the one that's like 10 years younger than me, and uh, figure this out. So thank you again for joining. I hope you guys uh, enjoy this podcast. I'll have more to come. Um, I have a schedule booked up until the end of June, and then after that, still kind of I'm trying to get some uh, different conversations together with some other people and hopefully have uh, some interesting conversations to come up. Uh, The month of May is the outcome versus opportunity. And I'm going to talk about the problems of abortion. And while I think abortion is both moral and immoral simultaneously, the conflict is my own and, but I think I have a unique perspective on it and I'd like to share it. So, Thank you, everybody, for joining, and and I hope you uh, tune in next time.